you've been watching us online or with us, Clayton has been preaching about Gideon for four weeks. He's threatening to continue, and I trust that he will. He will, or maybe. And, and he said something, which I'll get to shortly, but I'm, I'm going to actually delve into more specifically one of the things that he mentioned and he emphasized from Judges chapter 6. That's first. But the other thing is last week was Father's Day. And, and I also want to take that opportunity in that context to speak to you as a father. And I'm being a little bit more intentional today about not so much trying to teach, but to speak to you as a father would. And it is a privilege to be a father. And I have my own father, and I actually want to take the opportunity to honor him. Because one of the things you need to understand when you look at any person, it's you, and I can speak for myself specifically, you will not understand me completely unless you know my father. Some of you know that I, my father was a pastor. He was a pastor for about 40 years. And yet, that even in and of itself doesn't tell you who he is. But all to say that you, you cannot understand who I am. You can, you've heard me, some of you interact with me, but you can't really understand what makes me tick unless you know my father. And with that respect, I have much to give him honor for because he's paved the way not only for me, but my family. And I have ridden on many of his victories. And of that, how can I not say thank you? So dad, if you ever watch this video, thank you. I have much to honor you for. So this is the context that I'm speaking to you. And this is not going to appear, I, I kind of shortened down the scriptures, but there was a scripture that Clayton mentioned, is Judges chapter 6, verse 3. And I'll just read it, so just listen. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. And he actually made reference when he spoke about that, I think it might have been week one or two, about Mark chapter four and the parable of the sower. And that's what I'm going to speak to you about today. Not to teach about it, because I'm sure many of you had heard so many sermons about it. But there's an aspect of what Israel had sown, they did not reap in because the destroyer came in and they were left impoverished, impoverished and no sustenance. And that's a reality. So, parable of the sower mark chapter 4 but i'm going to do it in a slightly different way in that and i think partly it's due to what people receive when you, when i even mention the parable of the sower because you've had so much teaching and so much thought and maybe even study with respect to the parable and we know that there's some basic truths about it and i like mark chapter 4's version because in, in the New King James Version, it actually makes it pretty clear because it puts in italics of what's not there. And in, when Jesus actually starts to describe, actually relays the parable, he never mentions the seed. He never, he just talks about the sower and it's idyllic and, this, and you know, some fell here, some fell there. And he never actually mentions the seed. Then when he actually gets to the interpretation, and this is in verse 14, it's like the opening punch. And he says, the sower sows the word. And all of a sudden, he gives a reality of an interpretation of what exactly the seed is. And I appreciate that from a persuasive perspective, from a presentation perspective, because 
the most important thing was just laid out in such a basic, transparent form that now your, your attention is grabbed. The sower sows the word. And we know that that's referring to the word of God, the Logos. So I'm going to do this a slightly different way because I'm going to start at the end. And this is in Mark chapter 4, verse 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. And that's the end. That's the point. That speaks to the latent potential of the seed. And that's good news. I would hope you would think that's good news. And yet, if many people are really honest about it, I don't think many people take the parable of the sower as more encouraging versus discouraging. I was speaking to my daughter-in-law about this because I suspected this was true, and she just made this observation, is that, you know, three out of the four outcomes are bad. And it's true. 75% of the outcomes in the parable are bad. The one at the end is good, but most people don't automatically look at their life and say, yeah, hundredfold. Hundredfold. Yep, win, 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 hundredfold. Most people don't look at their lives in their self-analysis and self-humility and say to themselves, yep, hundredfold. I'm the hundredfold man. Most of them identify in the realities of their lives and the experiences and the course of their life and say, yeah, bad outcome, bad outcome, bad outcome. Oh, again, again, again. And there's a tenor in this that speaks to a level of discouragement, which is really should not be. See, I think through things sometimes, and you've always, there's always like a little strain that if you're willing to tug on it, it takes you in a place you really don't want to be. You see, most people's honest assessment of their lives with respect to the parable of the sower and the word of God, and they look at their actual experience, because we all have it, right? We all have it. And yet we don't automatically consider ourselves hundredfold people. Thirtyfold sounds pretty good too. And there's an, this thought that starts to rattle around their head to the degree that there is an element of discouragement that is produced from the parable. And it's that, you know, yeah, I, I get the seed. I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, but the seed in my hand is no good because I haven't produced so in my hand, it's kind of no good. And that actually, if you really start to be honest with the way you tick, that simple statement of the seed in my hand is no good actually becomes a proxy for the seed is no good. If I'm honest with myself, there's an element of that that starts to creep in. And that is expressly never should be the intention of the parable. You see, the, the notion of hundredfold return is absolutely God's intention. It's his intention. Not of one seed, but all of the seed. Not for one life, but for all of the lives. Not for one condition, but in every condition. See, in Genesis ch chapter 26, it gives an account of Isaac. And Abraham had already experienced famine and he went to Egypt. So there was another time of famine, and I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm going to be quick and more direct. And the Lord says to Isaac, this is 26, 
Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I will tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. Then Isaac sowed in that land, in verse 12, and reaped in the same year hundredfold, in a time of famine. It's the first time the notion of a hundredfold return was actually introduced in the scriptures. In a time of famine, which many people would consider now to be something akin to that. But never forget that the seed and the latent potential of it should never be lost by the translation in our lives. Hundredfold for all, regardless of condition. That's the seed. And that's what's being sown. So, I'm going to speak about this parable in a slightly different way. So I, I'm asking you to put on a lens, and I'm not here to tell you what the parable is not saying. I'm telling you the way I'm approaching this parable and how I want you to think about this parable with this particular lens. And for that, I'm going to use this illustration, but I have to explain to you, and I'm not going to do it because he's too humble to do so. But everybody knows Tommy. Tommy, put it to your hand. Tommy, just raise your hand, right? Tommy is like the star, right? I mean, if I could imagine somebody so approachable, so like, man, I want to hang out with that guy. I mean, it's Tommy, I mean, right? So I would actually love to have had Tommy stand up here, but this is a proxy for Tommy, okay? That's Tommy after eating a couple whole chickens and a box of donuts. So, so everybody knows Tommy. Tommy, I, we've known Tommy. I remember when Tommy first came to the church and he was still doing an internship, just dating Carly, that whole thing. And so things have changed for Tommy. You can actually say that he's borne some fruit. So Tommy's a super nice guy. And if you can imagine Tommy, that Tommy had a nemesis. Just imagine that. I, I know it's hard to believe. Now, who doesn't like Tommy, right? But imagine that Tommy had a nemesis. And this nemesis, because by definition, a nemesis is all about the opposite, everything possibly good that could happen to you, like, I'm not into that. I explicitly do not want that to happen. I'm explicitly looking to derail you in every context, and that's me against Tommy, a nemesis. And imagine that there was such a nemesis, because of course we know what I'm talking about. And Tommy was given the word. So you have two facts that just now are borne out by this example. Number one, somebody is Thomas's nemesis and the nemesis knows the full potential of that seed. Two basic facts, okay? And if I were to be a counselor, maybe, to the nemesis, an advocate if you will, not gonna use the term, what would my strategy be to say to the nemesis of how to deal this situation of somebody the nemesis absolutely hates and yet has something now in his possession that has the potential to be explosive in return? What would I do? What would I counsel the nemesis to do? We're going to answer that question because that's the lens that you have to appreciate of what the parable is talking about. There is a nemesis to you. That nemesis knows full well what the potential of explosive capacity of return this represents. And now he has to do something because he hates you. That's the lens. Please put that lens on. 
So, let's start. Now we'll go back to the beginning. Secede on the path. Mark 4, verse 4. And it says, And it happened, so he sowed, that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Okay, I know all of you farm-to-table people, you think farm, you think, oh, seed, oh, birds. Okay, yeah. As I said, I'm going to speak to you a little bit as a father today. So there's an injection of reality I'm going to bring into this equation. And I'm not here to be liked, per se, because, you know, sometimes fathers got to do that. But the word devour, I mean, kind of like should give you the first clue that this is not the idyllic scene of a farm and a nice setting and, well, you know, all birds are eating seeds. Like, no, use the word devour. And the word devour, if you look it up, I love looking up definitions, says to eat up greedily or ravenously, to use up or destroy. Yeah, that kind of removes the niceties of farm to table, right? But that word devour is very specific in that it's the same word that's used in Revelations chapter 12, verse 4, and this is what it says. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Yeah, that's not so nice now. But my, if I were to sit you at my kitchen table and speak to you as a father, and my boys know what I'm doing because I do this to them, and I said, so let's talk reality now. What is the difference? There is no difference between the dragon waiting to devour the child and the birds of the air seeking to devour the seed. There is absolutely no difference. It's just your mind, you think, oh, it's not so bad. But in, when I read Revelation and talking about the dragon, oh, all of a sudden, well, I don't like to think that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, talks about the rider on the white horse. Faithful and true. And his name is called the Word of God. Satan hasn't changed. The same ferocity that you can imagine of a dragon and the attributes placed upon the mere image of a dragon, the ferocity, the anger, the wrath, the wanton destruction, all of that is the same of the bird devouring the seed that fell on the path. And so if I was the counselor and advocate to the nemesis of someone like Tommy, I would say, destroy the seed. Because the potential an explosive return is too much to even risk that I have to cancel out that potential before it ever has the possibility of occurring. You know, Mark chapter 14, verse 15, this is where the interpretation comes. It says, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And I'm just telling you kind of where this message came from. Before Clayton mentioned that in Judges 6 verse 3, I was reading Mark chapter 4, and that word immediately just struck me. Just highlighted to me. 
And it set me on a path of just preparing this message. But the immediacy at which Satan is provoked to act to actually take away the seed should give you a clue about the thought and the attitude the enemy has of your possession of this. He cannot help to act immediately, violently even. And I know it's hard to really appreciate this, so I have an example to illustrate the point to you. Because we like to think about nice things, pleasant things, not all things like the world. But to illustrate the provocation of the evil one with respect to the seed. Oh my goodness, time is flying. Imagine now, we'll, we'll put you in a nice place. Okay, imagine for all you moms, this is for you. Imagine your beautiful child, Sunday best, maybe even Easter Sunday outfit, five, six years old, right? Boy, girl, doesn't really matter, but you're a mom, right? And you're sending picture worthy, maybe even gram worthy, I don't know. But imagine, if you will, you had a child and, you know, I mean, some kids like fire, right? I kind of liked fire when I was young. Not a good idea. But imagine if you would, you had, moms, you had a five-year-old and you gave that child a blazing torch. Like an actual torch. Like not fake fire, but like real fire. And, you know, like probably the crazy uncle, right, gives your child the torch. What's your response? Oh, let's, let's take a picture. No. No. Immediately in your head, it's not even like a calculation, it's like a response, right? Because immediately in your head, you, you're thinking, oh my goodness, the, you know, this, is, this outfit is not flam- it's, it's like not non-flammable. If it ignites, we got a problem. The child's going to run. I know my kid, he's going to run around the house, going to set the whole house ablaze. So your response in this situation is, get that torch out of their hand. Immediately. It is not a delay. Immediately. That response, that reaction, that reflexive nature is exactly the enemy's attitude to the seed. Because the potential of the seed to ignite the person, the potential of of the seed to ignite not only the person, but every person that comes into contact with that person is so ridiculously large in terms of risk, it has to produce a response now. Immediately. The way he takes the seed away is to blind those to the word so that they cannot comprehend it, so that the seed cannot take root. That's Second Corinthians 4, just 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Blindness. That's how he takes away the seed. So, I actually feel like praying for some people right now in this way. This is the word of God. This is the seed. And if you feel like when you read this, that your thought is like, I don't get it. I, I'm trying to read this and it's just nothing. I just feel like I don't understand it. You might even feel like you get tired when you pick it up. 
you get confused by it. That's an actual element of the immediacy of the enemy to remove and to devour the seed. That's what it is. So, if you feel like you're like that, I'm going to pray for you right now. Because as fathers in the house, that should not be. That is a scenario that should be removed from the people of this house. So, just close your eyes if you wouldn't. Don't mind. Father, I thank you for your seed, the very word of God, the life and the explosive latent potential you have put in for our benefit to be understood, to be received with joy, to bear fruit. And in the name of Jesus, I just remove and rebuke the devourer from capturing that seed that you have so delighted to give to us. And I place over your people right now a hedge of protection around their minds. And I say to the eyes of your people, open in the name of Jesus. Ears open to receive all that God you have put in our hands to receive with joy, to understand and go forth and bear fruit. I thank you, Lord. And I pray over the minds of your people right now, clarity, clarity as they read your very words to us, clarity in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Where am I? Let's move on. Stony ground. Mark chapter 4, verse 5. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately, there's that word again, immediately, it sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. The seed, as I said, the latent explosive potential, there's an immediacy to it. Once it begins to take root, it is immediate. In verse 16, it gives the interpretation, which we know. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Okay. Yeah, that's not a good outcome. But think about it from the perspective, as I said. Remember, my lens I want you to use. This is a game plan. The seed will produce. And the enemy has a prescribed tactic that God literally told you what was going to happen. And if he was not able to steal it, that it was understood now, what is the next course of action? This is the next step in the strategy, and that is tribulation. See, it says very clearly, tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake. 
It is the word, again, that's provoking this response of persecution. And I'm not going to, I've actually preached this message, but I really want you to do one thing for me if you're interested. Ken, on April 26th of this year, preached a message. It was entitled, The Necessity of Turbulence. Watch it again. Everything I could say about it, he said. James chapter 1, Romans chapter 5, the necessity of turbulence and the response that you can have. So I'm going to leave it there for now. But it says immediately they stumble. And that word stumble, I, I really, I'm not trying to teach so much as just speak. It's offended, scandalizo. And the definition of that is to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall or to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. That's the definition of scandalizo, which immediately is a consequence of persecution and what the result is, is you stumble, which is you get offended. And who you get offended with? God. The one that you're supposed to put your trust in, you're offended at him. I'm not saying this because I'm blaming you. I'm telling you with a strategy. And Clayton pretty much said this, I think it was last week or the week before, is that when the enemy is about to lose, understand the seed has taken root. The explosive potential is starting to be realized. And when the enemy knows that we have a problem, division, offense. That's what happens. The very partnership that is... In, should be in play to actually help you to take a seed, cultivate, and bear hundredfold return has now actually been split in partnership through offense, and it looks like this. You know, he said things would work out for you in the situations you find yourself in, but it sure doesn't look like it. Persecution, tribulation. So it's very simple to get to that next stage of thought processes. The seed you gave me is no good. It's no good. Not happening. And if you don't trust what was given as a gift, how can you trust the giver of the gift? So I would, I'm going to cut to the chase here. And let me just explain one concept to tuck this back in your head because you're going to have persecution for the word's sake. But think about it from this way. You know, in theory, right, for, think about your life. You think about things that, like, the big breaks in your life that are going to propel you to a different place in your life, be it personal, relationships, career, doesn't really matter because God's invested in your life. So the difference between like what happens to you in your job versus what happens to you in terms of revelation is really kind of the same thing because he's invested in you. Now think of anything that you care about so that has significant consequence in your life because it's going to propel you to a totally different place. In other words, the potential return is large. Well, guess what? If I'm the nemesis and I see that the stakes are high, aren't I motivated just rationally to now really intervene and start to derail that process? If you're going down a road, okay, I'll say this another way. People get concerned about like, oh my goodness, it's like so hard all of a sudden. 
like a, like a roadblock, like an obstacle. Well, because maybe because like it's really important for your life. So it's kind of rational that if I really don't want that for you, I'm going to start to put obstacles in the way. Contrast that with temptation. See, temptation, right, is about like not good things, right? And yet the way the enemy works with temptation is like, oh my goodness, this path is so easy. All I need for you on a path of temptation, Proverbs 1.10 says this, is that all I need is your consent. That's all I need. But I, you know, the enemy's going to clear that path. Oh my goodness, there's no obstacles here. Just give me your consent. That's all I need. Yet the things that are good things, the great things in your life, it's like, we're like, why is it so hard? I mean, think about this. You expect it to just be like an open path? That's the stony ground. That's the playbook. It's not about a bad outcome per se. It's the rational motivation of one who is your nemesis and understands the value of the potential of what you have. That's a stony ground, but we're going to move on very quickly. We're at 1130. <laughs> now the thorns. I'm trying to relate this to the context that Clayton has been preaching in, which I think is very important for us as a body but individuals make up a body too. Mark chapter four, verse seven, it says, and some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no crop. Not a gardener. My mom is, she's really good. I didn't get that gift. Well, I don't really want that gift. It's actually <laughs> true. It's more accurate. But, you know, when we were young, every once in a while, she would make us like do yard work and, you know, have to pull weeds for 30 minutes and things like that, which in the mind of a child is, makes sense how, I don't know. But, you know, thorns grow up. And to choke it, all it means is that it's higher than the plant, right? That's all it means. That whatever was to be fostered to be developed, to be grown in your life as a consequence of this, that somehow something now has grown up higher. Higher. It's like not complicated, right? That there is a higher thing in your life that now chokes off what God intended for explosive hundredfold return. So let me just take two minutes and teach you something which is not about me explaining in detail, but to give you the concepts and just think about it. Four scriptures. So Mark 4, 18, which is the interpretation, says, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Scripture one. Number two, 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse 3. Ephesians six seventeen, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 4. 
Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. I will give you a very quick explanation, but please ruminate it, study on it. God gave you a seed. The seed begins to grow. Could be a revelation of your king. A thorn is now planted. And it becomes, because possibly, the first example, the cares of this world. It now takes a place higher than that revelation that you carry. And now that begins to choke the word. That now is a becomes, has the potential to become a stronghold in your life because it is a higher thing of your revelation of God. And the way you combat that is what he's given to you, which is a sword of the spirit. And how do you apply that? <clears throat> Clayton already preached this, by the way. I'm not going to dwell on this. The sword enables you to go in and begin to separate soul and spirit, and by that process, that high thing gets taken down. And this now is given permission and freedom to bear fruit. That's a teaching that you can just go on. But I said, I'm speaking to you more as a father, not about teaching. Because we all see this as, oh my goodness, yeah, I, I failed here, there, yeah, got distracted. You have a million things competing for your thought life. And what you think about is the most important to you. And we all fail. So I'm not here to dwell on that as a negative outcome that we're really good at. That's a human experience. But understand, this is playbook part three. But here's what I do want you to know as a father. Because the perspective of the parties in this equation is really helpful for you to actually dealing with this issue without saying, oh my goodness, I had to fail, 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 fail. What I don't want to do, I do all that stuff. See, this is more and more true, partly because it's biblical. It's already been prophesied. But the sign of our times is something like this. That God is not perceived as, as good as he really is, and the devil is not perceived as evil as he really is. Kind of the sign of the times, right? But it's also been prophesied. Some men will call evil good and good evil. So are you surprised? Prophesied. Biblical prophecy. Boom. You see, many people like to think in their lives that somehow we can have like an uneasy truce with the enemy. Like, you know, if I don't bother you, you don't bother me, and kind of like, can we just live our separate lives kind of thing? No, it doesn't really work that way. And I tell my boys this, there's a reality to this world that if I do not explain to you, I have actually abdicated my responsibility as a father. See, it is hard for us to fully comprehend. That's why I try and use examples to understand the base motivations of the one who is actually your nemesis. And see, this might offend you, but the closest human equivalent you have to the enemy is a psychopath. That might be offensive. That might make you a little bit uneasy. And you know, some of you are like in the sensibilities and the niceties of your world. It's like, no, no, no. Really? Because that's not the world I live in. See, I, I found this online because, you know, it's true. <laughs> and, but 
sorry, I didn't mean to put in excessive jokes here. In the early 1800s, doctors who worked with mental patients began to notice that some of their patients, who appeared outwardly normal, had what they termed a moral depravity. Or, quote-unquote, moral insanity. In that, they seemed to possess no source of ethics or the rights of other people. Psychopath. I'm hoping you're filling in the blanks in your head here. So imagine, if you will, that you actually did encounter a psychopath in your midst, your business, family, friend. I mean, pick your context, right? And the enemy, particularly psychopaths, is what I understand. They look for victims that cannot conceptualize who they are. And I hope you can appreciate the significance of that. Because, you know, psychopaths don't come to you obviously crazy, obviously there to be a threat. No, it's not the way they work. Because if they, you cannot conceptualize who the psychopath is, then that psychopath is then free to manipulate, to control, and destroy without any remorse without any remorse. And so while the notion, the very notion that you happen to have a nemesis who is akin to a psychopath, while that may offend your sensibilities, it still is nonetheless true. And I say this to you for this specific reason. That when you encounter thoughts and temptations that begin to, you have like a brief moments of insight, understanding that this is now starting to become the center of your world in your mind's eye. Could be anxiety, could be fear, could be concern about your future, could be concern about every possible occurrence that could derail you. Understand this, that the, the very motive and the very spirit behind it is one who is as a psychopath that is looking to take you down. Understand that. Because so easy, we get so wrapped up in our own failings as like, oh my goodness, I've failed again. Well, yeah, that's fine. We fail. I get that. But there is one behind that. That once you actually begin to take off the mask and you start to recognize some of that for what it truly is and the capacity and the intent of what it's truly designed to do, which is to take this seed, to choke it off so that it never produces. I leave that with you as a father. It's like, don't be naive. Don't be naive. There is not a limit to how much he will take from you. There just is not. He doesn't take a vacation. And I know, yes, we, we don't overtly focus on the enemy too much, but as a father, I want you to understand the realities of what you are dealing with. And the fact that you have a nemesis should be a wake-up call. But not as in the sole focus. The nemesis is of this. Yes, like our example was, he hates you, but he's really afraid of the seed. And if you keep that simple picture in mind, 
I think you will actually gain greater perspective on exactly what is happening in your experience. So to, to, to finish up, we are going to finish. Yes, there are potentially three out of four of these outcomes are negative, but that's not the point. This is a playbook. And I leave you with this thought just to end, and, I, and I'll, I'll close it up in prayer just, in just a second. The word is a flashpoint. That is a flashpoint. Don't even think so much it's about you. Yes, it is about you because you are the carrier of the seed. But the seed in and of itself is the flashpoint. Because the explosive potential and the risk of actually having this take root and produce fruit, that is what, is what he fears. And you carry it. All of you. And it is, as I said, akin to you carrying a torch. You set yourself on fire, you are dangerous. Everybody you touch, you will set them on fire. Now you can understand why you might experience tribulation, why you might experience temptation. This is part and parcel because this latent potential in its explosive nature, that's the flashpoint. So, to close, that was kind of a closing, but it's really a simple one. When you, when you pick this up, the next time you're just by yourself and you pick this up, just, I encourage you just to pray one simple prayer. God, show me. Help me to see. That's it. If you do that, the potential can be realized. That's it. Just ask, show me. Just show me. All right, let's close. Let's, if you don't mind, just, just close your eyes. Quick prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you've given. Your very intention your very plan, the very word of God given to us in seed form, containing in it your expressed intention for our lives in so numerous of capacities that we just say, Lord, how great you are. And I pray for us. And I say, oh Lord, let your seed do what it's designed to do transform to bring forth life in the name of Jesus. Amen.